I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we're almost in August, um, so the calendar continues to turn. You know, I want to kind of focus my opening today before we get to our guest on just voting. So, um, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast, and and there's some great journalism happening around this. But uh, just a caution for all of us that just the simple act of voting is going to maybe determine this election. Um, You know, I mentioned, I think, last week, you know, some of these primaries are showing um, 7 to 8% of mail-in ballots are being thrown out. Um, I've seen some data suggest amongst first-time voters, uh, which predominantly are younger voters, it's over 10%. So people who aren't just familiar, and, and again, the rules differ by state. I, you know, a story about my own mistake. So in the March presidential primary in California, uh, my wife and I were voting uh, around the table. Uh, and in California, you have to sign the envelope that the ballot goes into. And I signed my wife's ballot and she signed mine. So we had to take those physically uh, into our precinct, which we're able to do, so our votes counted. Um, But if we had sent those in, they might not have counted. So I guess my message is all of you individually, your friends and family members who are committed to getting Trump out of office, you know, just make sure you're talking to them, sharing good content, checking with them, make sure they're, first of all, their request is in. There's no reason to wait. If you're going to vote by mail, and listen, if you want to vote in person and, and you're not worried about the safety issues around there, you know your vote's going to count as long as you're registered. So, you know, in-person voting's just fine. You know your vote's going to count. You make a mistake on a mail-in ballot and it may not count. So, uh, you know, I don't think we necessarily want to discourage people who are intent to vote in person to do so. But there's no doubt we just don't know what the health uh, and pandemic situation will be in November. So a lot of people are obviously going to vote by mail, many for the first time. So just to have your own checklist for yourself and for everybody you're in contact with. Have, do, if they want to vote by mail, do they have the request in? There's no reason to wait. You know, do they know the rules for you know making their selections? Here's how you vote for Joe Biden. Here's how you vote for a state senator. Is it a check? Do you connect the lines? Do you need postage? Do you need to sign the outside of the envelope? You know, some states require you to have the ballot in on election day. Others just require it to be postmarked. Very important to know. So, uh, you know, where this takes me is let's just all be early on things. Let's request our ballots early. Let's fill them in at the first moment. Let's double check them. Make sure you're you're sharing content and, and the rules with everybody you can. Don't let anything to chance. So, you know, as we look at things that could go wrong here and how could Joe Biden lose this lead, you know, he could make a big mistake. Maybe he doesn't do well in debates. You know, I think the debates are much more likely to help Joe Biden than not. Uh, you know, maybe the pandemic doesn't miraculously go away as Donald Trump ridiculous, he says, but uh, things settle down and the economy surges a little bit. I don't think that'll be enough for Trump, but he, he may gain some vote back. But the thing that really concerns me is, you know, just the pure execution. So the people who say, I am voting and I'm voting for Joe Biden, uh, but somehow too many mistakes are made. So, and we know there's already other challenges. You know, some election officials, particularly in states that aren't used to this volume, are going to have a hard time counting these. So it's going to take a long time. 
They're still counting votes in New Jersey and New York from the primaries that happened weeks ago. You know, you've got the Postal Service. This is going to put a big surge of demand on them. So um, let's just take care of our business and everybody should, you know, be their own agent here and make sure that uh, you're talking to everybody you can about this and making sure we're on top of this. So one of the big moments to come in this campaign is the Democratic Convention for Joe Biden. And so we're going to talk today to Stephanie Cutter, uh, who's uh, producing the convention, about uh, what they hope to get out of the convention. Obviously, this is a very different convention because of the pandemic. It's our first mostly virtual convention. Uh, Stephanie has announced that they're going to be having shorter segments, uh, each segment shorter, but also just two hours of, of primetime programming a night, which is shorter than it's historically been. So really, we're going to go deep on the convention, some of the challenges um, that the situation presents, but also some of the opportunities. It's an opportunity to rethink uh, the convention. Stephanie is a, a longtime Democratic strategist and operative. I, I believe she began her career back with Governor Mario Cuomo, worked in the Clinton White House, uh, was communications director for both John Kerry in his presidential race and for Ted Kennedy in the United States Senate. Uh, was chief of staff for Michelle Obama in the first Obama campaign, uh, was a colleague of mine uh, in the White House, and was our deputy campaign manager uh, in the 2012 reelect. So Stephanie um, is also a master of all things message. So in addition to talking about the convention, uh, we're going to talk to her uh, kind of about the state of race from a communication standpoint, uh, the kinds of things we should be watchful for that, that Donald Trump and his campaign may try and execute uh, in the coming weeks, and, and some of the challenges and opportunities Joe Biden has coming out of the convention uh, to further cement in voters' minds what he'll do with, uh, as president. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Stephanie Cutter. Stephanie Cutter, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me. So... You just can't say no. So now you're back in the midst of another presidential campaign uh, in charge of producing kind of a historic convention, uh, given the pandemic. So I want to start there. I want to talk about the campaign generally. So you made a little bit of news this week where you uh, announced that there'd be two hours of primetime programming every night, shorter than normal. Most of it would be virtual. And so I'd start with like one thing on audience as you think about it. Like what percentage of the audience do you think will consume this real time, uh, you know, whether online or on one of the networks? Or do you think a lot of this will be content that, you know, gets shared in the days afterwards? Well, we're planning for both um, and making sure our content is short, digestible, um, you know, good for a TV show like this, where your segments really have to be short and engaging and um, to keep the program moving but also short and digestible for people to pull them up on their iPhone. Um, and we are looking at multiple ways to get that information out um, and engage more people than ever before in the convention. Since it's a totally virtual convention, you don't need um, a hard pass or a credential um, to get into anything. Um, you're, you know, if you've never been involved in politics before and this is your first convention, you can be just as involved as a delegate that's been going to a convention for 30 years. Um, so, and we want to involve people in uh, ways that they feel comfortable where they are already receiving information. So um, there's a, there'll be a very strong digital component of this. We'll run our own live stream uh, on multiple platforms um, and have different ways for people to engage. Right. All that sounds great. I, it's a shame it took a pandemic to uh, force shorter 
segments, right? <laughs> I mean, I guess we tried and failed. Uh, no, back kidding, in the day. Right? no, no, it's uh, so one thing I'm curious about now, the shorter, the shorter, you know, two hour window should help with this. But you probably remember back in 08, um, you know, when you were serving as Michelle Obama's chief of staff, um, you know, we uh, didn't get done with the primary until very late, right? So we had to turn around and figure out the convention. But I thought we had such amazing, you know, really starting in the afternoon all the way through prime time. You know, just um, average voters, you know, talking about their story, why they were for Barack Obama. And of course, the networks didn't carry much of that, right? Because they talk over that with their talking heads, something you and I have both been in the past, uh, uh, and just, you know, focus on the principles. So how do you think about that? Uh, be- now, maybe easier for the content that lives after the convention that gets shared on, on social media. But in terms of how do you ensure some of those most, con- I'm sure you're going to have people who voted for Trump or aren't again. H- how do you ensure that that actually gets covered? Well, you know, this is new for everyone, right? So we're throwing out a lot of the old playbook of how you plan a convention. Most of the party business will happen off screen, uh, with the exception of the roll call. Um, and, uh, And I think the same argument can be made to networks that they need to rethink how they cover this because, um, you know, just like every other program that networks have produced over the past six months that we've been dealing with COVID, um, this is a virtual convention, which means that uh, a lot of this content has to be pre-recorded because you cannot do a two-hour live program four nights in a row. Um, that would be a disaster. Um, so, um, you know, the the type of content that people will see, it will be very heavy um, everyday Americans. Um, and because that's, we want to give a sense of where the country is and better to hear that from everyday Americans than politicians. Um, so the, the upside and downside of having a two hour convention, um, is that you can include fewer people. So if you're me, that's an upside. (laughs) If you're somebody who wants to speak, that is probably uh, a downside. Um, and so you'll, you'll see less of the same typical political speeches that you see at a convention of the past, um, and much more engaging content conversations, um, um, uh, you know, getting elected officials out into their communities, um, and engaging with their constituents, um, you know, a snapshot of where the country is um, on racial justice and COVID and the economy and all of the different crises that we're dealing with at once that are screaming for leadership. We're going to tell those stories through the eyes of everyday Americans um, because that's how people are experiencing it right now. Um, Should the networks choose not to cover that and talk over it? I think they'd be really missing something. This is good content. Um, And uh, if you rethink how you're going to cover this convention, um, uh, you know, just like we've rethunk this, um, I think they, you know, they'll be more open to it. Um, we have the same issue, as you know, in years past that they don't cover videos because they consider that to be campaign propaganda. Um, well, conventions are campaign propaganda. <laughs> and we each have one, right? So it's fair. They have theirs. We have yeah. Ours, yeah. Um, and the, um, you know, to the extent that we are having videos, it's because it's a quicker way to relay information um, than in having speech after spe- speech after speech. Um, so 
Um, you know, we'll have plenty of live content for them to cover, um, plenty of pre-recorded segments of people actually engaging. I think it's possible you might see Biden uh, more than just his Thursday night speech. Um, and we're, we're just we're shaking everything up um, and looking at everything with fresh eyes um, and not, you know, how many conventions have been, you been to? Probably the same number as I have. Um, and I went to the last one in 2016 and swore I would never go to one again. Um, turns out we don't have to. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Maybe never again. Uh, yeah. We'll see. Maybe that'll be another thing. So I want to talk to you about some of the message imperatives. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about voting in organizations. So, you know, in both of our conventions in 08 and 12, I believe Hillary did this in 16, you know, you talk about, you know, there are sections about volunteering, right, and and registering voters. But this seems to be profound, right, which is we're seeing in some of these primaries that just happened, you know, 7 8% of absentee ballots not counting because they were filled out incorrectly. I believe there's data out there that says with younger and, and first-time voters, it's over 10%. So how much of the convention um, – uh, is also about just the 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 practice of voting. You know, it's a it's a great time I would imagine to educate people. Obviously, you don't want to overdo that because you've got important messaging on, as you said, COVID, racial justice, the economy, healthcare. But will there be kind of a component about here's how you vote? Um. Well, without re- revealing too much. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> um, plenty of calls to action, including voting. Um. But you know, plus we are what we're. This convention will be in mid-August, so we're still three and a half months out from the election. That's a big gap, um, though people will start voting just shortly after this convention. Um, So we need to, we want to be able to issue these calls to action at the right time for people when they're ready to receive the information. So you'll hear plenty of that at the convention, but I think post-convention, there'll be a real concerted, concerted effort on voting and ballot chasing and ensuring people understand the new rules in which they have to vote um, because every state is different now. And certainly there are lots of um, obstacles being thrown up um, in making it easy for people to vote. Um, So um, I think the campaign is going to take that very seriously. Um, It will start at the convention, but the, the big push will come after that. As ballot, yeah, right. So, um, you know, Joe Biden's running against a a deeply unpopular uh, incumbent who's mishandled, um, you know, a crisis maybe worse than any president's mishandled anything. Um, so, and that is a known fact. It's one of the reasons Biden has opened up such a big lead. Uh, but the convention, to your point, it is the one opportunity where you get to tell your own story. And I think it's important for people to understand you can't view this as one speech versus another speech. A, a good convention, you know, from the beginning to end tells a story. And so as you think about this, what is the balance between continuing to remind people why they can't afford four more years of Donald Trump versus, you know, what Joe Biden will do, both from a, an issue standpoint and a crisis management standpoint, you know, but also from a character and value standpoint? Well, I think, you know, again, because this is a different program, this is people are just watching this on TV or on their iPhones or whatever device. It's different than being at a live convention. When you're throwing red meat to the crowd at a live convention, the crowd cheers. When you're throwing red meat into the television, (laughs) people are going to turn it off. So there has to be a careful calibration. It's not that Trump is not going to be in the convention at all. It's that people have been living that through four years. They know very well all of the 
mismanagement and chaos and corruption coming from this administration, we don't really have to remind them of that, but it does provide good context for what we can change. Um, so our first and foremost priority for this convention is to tell people who Joe Biden is. Um, you know, we know him uh, very well, Puff, uh, and lots of Democrats know him. Um, but uh, people who really haven't been paying attention or uh, people that were, you know, trying to persuade, they don't know that much about him. Um, and if there's anybody's life story that's worth telling, it's Joe Biden's. And, um, you know, such a story of resilience and perseverance and, um, you know, uh, sort of a purpose driven life. Um, and it's, it's so rich with, um, family and, uh, his career and his record and everything that he's done. Um, that is our first priority to give people a window of who this man is. You know, he's a man of faith and family. He's a man of incredible resilience, um, who has suffered some of, you know, um, some of, uh, the worst losses imaginable. Um, but, you know, picks himself up every single day, um, and, uh, and works towards, um, you know, making things better for the American people. That is, um, that's the story we want to tell. And that's such a distinct story in contrast to Donald Trump. Um, you know, Joe Biden, um, you know, we Scranton Joe, as we used to call him, he, you know, he has this amazing connection with working Americans across the country and working Americans are hurting right now. They are taking the brunt of the coronavirus and he has a unique connection to them. That is his life story. Um, so we're I'm really looking forward to telling it. We've got some interesting ways we're going to try to push that out. Yeah. Well, we can't repeat it enough that, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, I, you know, as any figure is, um, you know, short of a president, um, is not that well known, right? There are some younger voters who barely know he's the VP, but even those who know that he was Obama's VP, um, you know, it sort of starts and ends there. Um, and so this is a great opportunity to fill that in. I'm curious, you know, um, as you look at the Republicans and, and Trump in particular scramble around, I mean, this was like a, you could see it's like a car wreck in slow motion. You kind of knew it was going to end uh, with things kind of a mess. But, you know, part of, I'm sure, I mean, for the most part, you just want to execute a great convention, uh, almost irregardless of what the other side does. But as you think about what the other side may do, I mean, do you have a sense, is this going to be Trump um, basically just, you know, an extra two hours every night of Sean Hannity and just kind of speaking to his aggrieved base? Or do you think um, they may actually try and, and begin to reach out and tell a more cohesive economics rate? To me, it's fascinating because whatever his team thinks, uh, it really only matters what he thinks, right? And he could overrule even great strategy or advice uh, to the extent there is any. So you have any sense of what we should expect from them? You know, I know what it's like to plan a convention, particularly planning a convention in coronavirus, and it takes months to put a program together. I can't imagine what they're planning is anything more than just a series of tirades. And, you know, maybe they'll try to tell their economic story. You know, if you were them or if we were on that campaign, we'd certainly be struggling trying to put lipstick on that pig. And, you know, when you're an incumbent president, you have to make it a choice. So I think one of their primary objectives is to take it, you know, right now it's a referendum, but they're going to try to make it a choice and spend a lot of time tearing down Biden. 
Um, and certainly that's all Donald Trump knows how to do in terms of campaigning. Um, and uh, to show that, you know, you know, sort of like that George Bush choice in 2004, you may not like me or everything that I've done, but at least you know where I stand. Um, and it could be that sort of choice that he tries to set up. I'm not sure that Trump is that um, sophisticated in making that choice or would ever admit that anything he has done has been anything less than perfect when it's just been the opposite of that. Um, but that that's their, their uh, you know, that should be their objective. Um, and we're certainly looking at our convention and thinking, you know, we're not going to plan this in anticipation of them. We're going to tell the story we want to say, but just in, just because we you know, I've been in politics for a long time. Um, I, I pretty much know the kinds of things they're going to pull out um, and try to, uh, you know, wedge against us the following week. I just don't think it's going to be effective. You know, they, every, people don't need to be reminded about what's gone wrong they need to know what, what can be done right. They need to know what the future looks like. Um, you know, the politics of fear, I just don't think work this year. Um, they worked in 2016. Um, they have certainly worked in the past. Um, but they don't work this year. They don't work on Biden in particular. Um, and people uh, feel pretty good about his attributes and um, his ability to do the job um, and his experience. And it's that type of comfort that you know that somebody will be looking out for you um, and, you know, has that steady hand and experience to get it done right that I think people would find comfort in right now. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Of course, we talked earlier that, you know, people still need to learn a lot more about Biden. So he's benefiting from more of a sense right now, right, uh, of those attributes. And I think if the convention goes as you hope it does, and, you know, I think if he just shows up on the stage uh, in the debates, uh, that will be more than what Donald Trump, you know, suggests Joe Biden can do, right? So if he has a good convention and some good debates, it seems like, um, you know, this these strengths right now he has electorally, I think, are a little bit tenuous. But if they're strengthened uh, with more information, right, and more validation in his performance, um, it really could be interesting. So I'm curious, this is, you know, in part about the convention, but about the campaign generally. So, uh, you know, uh, you were, um, you know, leading the charge in, in 2012, as we define Mitt Romney successfully, uh, uh, you know, to make that race a choice. Um, you were on the other side of that when George Bush did that to John Kerry. Uh, you saw Bill Clinton do that to Bob Dole in 96. So why? It, it's just, you know, kind of, uh, you know, politics one-on-one if you're an incumbent, uh, whether governor, mayor, president, particularly when you're in a challenging situation like Trump is, to make this a choice. Is it just... I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'd love your thoughts on this. I mean, I think he is such a narcissist that he he actually doesn't think this should be a choice, that this should just be rehire me because I'm awesome. Uh, and here's my reality and all the things I've done. But he must, they must, you know, I always think it's a mistake to underestimate your opponent, right, in business or politics. So he's got some smart people around him, maybe, maybe not a lot, but some. So what has happened here? Because it is getting really late. I mean, you know, to your point, people aren't voting yet, but they will be in about, thir- you know, 30 to 45 days in a lot of places. Uh, and if he blows this convention and doesn't do what he needs to do, it seems like, you know, the you know, at that point, you're almost to midnight. Yeah. And I also suspect that the debates are not going to come off as as normal. Um, and he's going to try to mess with those, too. Um, you know, can he make it a choice? 
Um, he can certainly try. Um, the way you make it a choice is, um, you know, to, to, to be able to articulate that under your leadership, the country is on a better path. And that if you change from that leadership and take a wrong turn, you're going to go back, uh, you know, back to the days of, you know, whatever it is, even though <laughs> the days right. of pre-Trump <laughs> weren't that bad compared to where we are right now. Right. Um, so it's not, you know, he can try to make that argument. I think he's got, he's sort of in a box because, um, you know, people know enough about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is associated with uh, the with President Obama and eight years of a pretty successful White House um, in terms of the, the voters that we're trying to appeal to. Um, and um, uh, to make it a choice and make people afraid of, of Joe Biden in terms of where he would take the country, it just doesn't, it doesn't add up to people. Um, you know, he did this against Hillary Clinton in 2016. The difference there is there was already a lot of work done over the course of 30 years on, um, on conditioning the ground for people to believe those arguments about Hillary Clinton. And uh, that is not the same for Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, they're very, very different people. So Trump's playbook, I, I don't think will work on Joe Biden. Um, and that's the only playbook he really knows. If you watch his, you know, rally speeches when he went to Tulsa and got everybody sick, it was the same rally speech that we heard in 2016. Um, so he hasn't progressed as a candidate, obviously he hasn't progressed as a president. Um, but in terms of articulating where this country is uh, and what his leadership uh, can bring people or what the choice is on the ballot, he he's is not at this point, you know, we're almost in August. Um, if you think back to uh, 2012, when President Obama was running for reelection, we had our arguments set on um, where the where the president wanted to take the country over the course of the next four years and what the choice was on the ballot. That was well set in stone at that point and already pretty well saturated into the electorate. Um, of course, we had a better argument to make. Um, but the fact that they are, they're still sort of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks on Biden, uh, whether it's sleepy Joe or corrupt Joe or something like that now. <laughs> Sleazy Joe. Yeah. You know, they don't even have to find his opponent. So that speaks volumes. And, and I think it also says that the only person that really matters on that campaign is Donald Trump. He's calling the shots. Um, and that's also a very dangerous place to be for a presidential campaign. Yeah, particularly for an incumbent. I think being kind mm -hmm. of a swashbuckling challenger, maybe you can get away with a little bit more. Yeah, so before I want to talk about the convention a little bit more, but your point about, you know, the attacks falling flat, I mean, that is one thing I've learned is that for political attacks, whether they be just straight attacks or contrasts, you know, they have to have ideally both, they have to have at least some credibility with voters that that's plausible and credible people making the charge. So, you know, back to 04, you know, the horrible swift boat veterans for truth, 
you know, maybe not a plausible attack, but there was plausible people making it, right? Uh, um, you know, and, you know, you remember back in 2012, you know, uh, Paul Ryan and Mitt Romney running around the country suggesting Barack Obama's going to end Medicare. People might have thought a lot of things about Barack Obama, but they didn't think our first African-American Democratic president was going to, you know, build his second term on cutting Medicare. So that's the issue, it seems, with, with Trump right now is this, you know, Biden's going to eliminate the suburbs and basically your house will be on fire. And, you know, the is people just... I don't think they'd believe it no matter who is running, but they certainly don't believe that it's Joe Biden, right? And that seems to be, if that's what they trot out uh, in their convention the week after yours, it just seems that there's not going to be a market for that. Yeah. yeah, I think there's two problems there. They don't believe the messenger, but they also don't believe the message. And those are two problems for the Trump campaign. Right, right. So on the convention, and, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, as a whole are pretty nervous people, right? So one of the things I think we should talk about and guard people, uh, you know, sort of uh, prepare people for is just given Biden's lead. I mean, I hate this, you know, discussion about a convention bounce anyway, but... You know, de- folks out there, in my view, shouldn't expect that, you know, after the Democratic convention, Joe Biden adds another five or six points. I mean, it seems to me the 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 goal of the convention is to lock in as much of the support he currently enjoys. Right. Because I do think he's kind of close to his ceiling with some voter groups. But how do you view that? Well, I think that, um, you know, some people get short bumps out of conventions. Some people don't. But the most important thing is to solidify what you do have. And, and look, Joe Biden is beating Donald Trump right now. Do we, is it going to stay that way over the course of the next three and a half months? Uh, it will probably tighten just because of the nature of this country um, right now. Um, but it is really important for this convention to lock in what he has, um, not just in the Democratic base, uh, but for, um, you know, Obama-Trump voters, swing voters, uh, people that are on the fence. Um, and people also who need to be urged to come out and vote. Those are all key people that we're trying to reach uh, with this convention. And you'll see a lot of messaging directed at them. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of um, crowdsourced content um, that will be part of this convention of just people saying what they want in the next president. Um, and, um, and a lot of, some of them will be coming from former Trump voters. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that's our, our, that is, you know, I can't speak for the campaign here. Um, but speaking for myself and for, uh, someone who's been through these conventions in the past, uh, the primary goal is to solidify what you do have and begin the appeal to new voters. Yeah. So let's talk about those new voters, because I think a lot of times people think about the convention as, you know, leaving aside the party business. Uh, you know, you're really talking to the middle of the electorate, you know, the traditional swing voters in places like Wisconsin and Florida. But, you know, you just mentioned a, a really important part of this, I think, particularly for, for Joe Biden, where, you know, the enthusiasm to vote for Biden has increased, uh, which we all like to see. Uh, but there's still a lot of room to grow, particularly with younger voters of all races. So, you know, that seems like you're very cognizant of that. But um, and it may be the virtual convention uh, is an asset in that regard, right? Because a lot of those types of voters aren't going to sit there and watch three hours on MSNBC, but if it's bite-sized and more shareable. So how do you view reaching that cohort? Well, we have to make it relevant to them Mm -hmm. and relevant in terms of what we're talking about and also who they see uh, on TV or on their device. Um, Is it people that look like them or is it people that look like they're, uh, you know, they're 
great aunt <laughs> or <laughs> right and so you'll see you know um obviously it'll be very diverse multi-generational uh but well you'll see lots of content that are is very relevant to young voters today um certainly um you know racial justice and climate um and how you deal with this economy you know you've got college graduates um who had to graduate virtually, who are locked in their parents' houses now for some unforeseen future. Um, those are those are people that we want to speak to. And um, and those people that are voting for the first time, we need to show them that their vote really counts um, and, uh, and ensure there's no complacency. So those are, are critical, critical objectives for us. Um, and... You know, I don't want to reveal too much about our content because we're still still locking things in and um, making our making final plans. Um, but um, you know, the the different types of messengers, um, the different platforms, um, the use of entertainment, um, all of those things um, to make it relevant and relatable for young voters. Right. Okay. So you're going to, okay, there's the Democratic Convention, which you will ensure is uh, a 10 out of 10 in terms of what we hope, right? Then we have the next week, we have kind of their white power shit show. Um, uh, And then we move into September. (laughs) So I'm curious. uh, (laughs) I mean, I think they don't really disguise it anymore. No, not anymore. Gonna forever call it the white power shit show. Shit show, yeah. There we go. But the um, I'm just curious. So, so taking your convention hat off and and now just putting on your veteran of of, of presidential campaigns. You know, I'm just curious. You know, I've talked to some you know friends and and former colleagues of yours on this podcast. You know, Jen Palmieri and uh, Dan Pfeiffer and others about this question. But I'm just curious. Um, how do you? You know, so you've got the conventions and then you've got and I agree with you. We don't know yet what the debates will look like, but assume there are, you know, two or three of them. Those are the big moments. Then you have every other day, right, where Trump, even though I think it's hurting him as much as it's helping him now, probably hurting him more. You know, he still does dominate the oxygen and and maybe that's fine. But when you think through, you know, the communications challenges for Biden. So one, it's like put Trump on the defensive Two, make sure he fully owns uh, his disastrous handling of the pandemic and the economic consequences. And then three, continue, which I think is the hardest part of this, um, it, you know, kind of day to day, you know, uh, pound through with Joe Biden's message about what he'll do. Just how do you look at the fall, um, uh, you know, in terms of what are the challenges and opportunities there? Well, the challenges are that, you know, the you can't campaign like you normally do. So Right. Um, engaging with voters, um, both, you know, whether you're an organizer or a candidate, um, is very different. Um, and I think that the Biden campaign has moved mountains in terms of adjusting to that new normal um, in a very short period of time um, and is doing a great job organizing virtually. Um, and so what does it look like in terms of driving a narrative through the fall um, and making your closing argument? Um, you know, you, as you said, you've got the debates. I'm, I'm very wary that those debates are going to happen as planned. Um, and then you've got a president who, um, you know, changes course <laughs> every two days um, on one of the greatest crises this country has ever faced. 
Um, and you don't want to get stuck uh, going down a rabbit hole every single day uh, and react to that because he's doing enough damage to himself. Um, you know, I think that the campaign probably has, um, you know, a couple of uh, key things they want to get done in September uh, and October. Um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about um, uh, getting a message out about not just voting, but how to vote in this uh, coronavirus era. Um, you know, I would I if I were on that campaign, I would spend a lot of time doing that and doing it below the radar um, as close to the ground as possible to get people organized and comfortable and to be able to vote with confidence. Um, and then I would, you know, pick my battles um, and probably not let uh, Trump ever get off of coronavirus, um, both from a health standpoint, um, but also an economic standpoint. Um, and on, on top of all of that, it's, uh, there's a, a character issue here where he can't be consistent in his leadership, consistent in his thoughts on coronavirus and consistently makes it about himself. Um, so I would pick my shots and I would find, use those shots as a way to lift Joe Biden up. Um, certainly they're up with advertising now. Um, they've, uh, they've got a lot of, you know, raising a ton of money, so they should be able to stay up on air. They're using digital very effectively, um, both in not uh, in getting their message out for sure to voters, um, but also in trolling Trump uh, and pulling him into uh, debates that they're trying to get him to have. Uh, turns out it's not that hard to do. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think... Um, I think they've adjusted to uh, the, a new way of campaigning. It's done virtually um, and it's uh, it, you're organizing online, you're communicating online uh, and really trying to drive a national narrative through the news media. Um, and, you know, I think that um, the vice president uh, probably in addition, in addition to what we'll do at the convention has more to do to talk about what he will do um, to turn this economy around um, and to also prevent this country from ever falling into a crisis like this in the future. Um, and, you know, I would encourage him to do that. And I think he will. Um, as much as we want to make this a referendum, um, you can't take your eye off the ball of ensuring that you are um, a good, solid choice um, from the person that you're running against. So it's not enough to be against someone. Uh, you have to give people a better option as well. Right. So on that better option, you know, you've always been very good at kind of understanding what the big things are versus the small things and, and looking around corners a little bit. It seems to me a, a core argument that will be on voters' uh, minds will be, and, you know, maybe this case has to be made more directly, that um, everybody wants to escape the clutches of the uh, COVID-19 um, but ultimately, we won't do that until we both have a vaccine. Um, but that in and of itself, um, maybe the easy part compared to making sure it's distributed. We've got, you know, a huge percentage of the country saying they won't take it. Like, do you think that's a core argument? Like, that basically, who can you trust to make sure that this country gets vaccinated, you know, in a timely manner, in a safe manner, in a comprehensive manner? The guy who basically created the shit show, Trump or Biden, that seems to be maybe an argument that, um, again, I think a lot of voters maybe already are pricing that into their decision. And that's why Biden's doing so well. But what do you think about that? I think that's incredibly important and spot on. You know, I think we... Um uh, you know, Joe Biden had a lot to do with how we handled Ebola, 
um, at the end of the Obama administration. Um, he had a lot to do with that pandemic uh, playbook that we left uh, uh, in the Oval Office for Donald Trump. Um, and it uh, turns out Joe Biden has been working on uh, pandemics throughout his career. Um, and uh, I think as we articulate that uh, and articulate someone who has experience in steady leadership um, and knows how to use government for the greater good, um, not for his own political purposes, but to protect the American people, people will be reassured by that. Um, and even, you know, um, remember when we had avian flu and H1N1 and, um, and the amount of work that we had to go through just to get people to take those vaccines um, and mobilizing doctors and uh, health professionals to get the message out, PSAs, um, organizing, uh, using uh, private sector partners like CVS and others um, to uh, encourage people to get vaccinated. That work needs to start now. Um, you know, assuming we get a, a vaccine, uh, God willing, knock on wood, uh, in the next six to eight months, um, the work to get organized to get people vaccinated has to start right now. Um, in fact, it's almost too late. I guarantee you um, that that is not a priority of this White House. Um, and, and people know it. People smell it. People have been experiencing this White House for four years. Uh, why would they believe it? Um, there has never been any marshalling of government uh, resources or forces for the greater good for this country under a Trump presidency. And that's not lost on people. Um, you know, I think uh, Joe Biden is almost the perfect messenger for this moment. Um, people want someone who knows what they're doing um, and who can has gotten us out of a crisis before and can do it again. Um, and, you know, who you can trust um, uh, to put you first, not himself first. Um, and that's a big distinction between these two candidates. And, um, you know, of course, like any campaign, there's work to do to, uh, to get that definition out there. But the good thing is people already sort of believe it about Joe Biden because it's true. And when it's, when it's true, there's nothing more effective than that. Um, it's not like they have to, you know, um, you know, we've both worked on a lot of campaigns and, um, sometimes it's easier to craft messaging uh, for a candidate than others, um, because, uh, you know, you can't change people. They are who they are. Uh, and the message has to fit with who they are. Um, and that's exactly what's happening right now. The steady leadership, the ability to get this country out of crisis, the steady hand putting country, uh, uh, ahead of politics. Um, um, that's who Joe Biden is. So, um, there's not a lot of convincing on that. It's just a matter of deployment. Deployment and reinforcement, yeah. So um, you mentioned your worry about the debates happening, um, maybe at all, or certainly as they're currently constructed with the commission. Uh, talk a little bit more about that. What concerns you and where do you think it could end up? On the debates? Um, you know, it seems like every day another debate site is pulling out of hosting the debate. Um, Shouldn't we just go to a TV studio like they did in 60? Yes. Um, you know, I mean, maybe if we're re- inventing conventions and doing things unconventionally, um, you know, we should think about doing debates unconventionally. Um, and, you know, I don't think there should be an audience. Um, and I think we should, uh, you know, look at different formats and, um, 
and uh, different types of moderators um, and shake it up a little bit. But what will Trump die to, try to do in debates? Um, he won't want any of that. He won't want a single moderator. He won't want uh, average Americans asking questions. And he's just not that agile um, in handling that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, I could also see a scenario uh, where he tries to get out of them because he has to, you know, quote unquote, manage the crisis. Um, and I don't think it will help Donald Trump to debate Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure he believes that, but I have a sneaking suspicion some of his people do. Right. So the question will be, just given his narcissism and belief in himself, will he plow forward anyway? Um, uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this. Yeah, I mean, even like I think the, you know, we call it the town hall debate. One of the three presidential debates, you know, has always been in, in recent times. Um, you take questions from the audience and, you know, there's ways to do that. I mean, we've all been spending a lot of time on Zoom. Maybe you bring people in by Zoom. But, you know, there's ways to still, I think, capture a lot of what's worked in the past, but refashion it. But I agree with you. I mean, I generally think the audience is outside of that. The other two debates, I think, would always be better served um, just being in a TV studio. And I think that'll be a challenge for Trump just because there's no energy for him to draw off of at all. Um, so I'm curious, Devin, you've managed your fair share of crises in your career. And uh, I want to talk about post-election. So, you know, there's a scenario where this ends up being razor thin. Uh, the result is really in doubt as it was in 2000. We're counting ballots for weeks. I don't want to talk about that scenario, uh, although it's, you know, not implausible. Let's talk about a scenario where it's clear Joe Biden's won, whether we actually know that night or we know November 10th or whenever it is. And, you know, Trump continues to say um, it was illegal, uh, you know, fraudulent votes. Um, the fix was in. I shouldn't leave. Like, and I'm thinking about this, I think that's a crisis for the country before it's a crisis for the Democratic Party. But you have thoughts on the planning that should be going into that right now. And that's probably less for Biden's campaign. They have to win an election than Democrats on the Hill and governors and secretaries of state. But you have any thoughts about how we should best handle that period? If Donald Trump refuses to believe that he lost? Yeah. So so not a scenario where the question, it's really in doubt, right? Um, uh, where, you know, let's say Joe Biden wins, you know, nationally by six points, wins battleground states by two or three, and he's clearly won um, plenty of electoral votes. Again, maybe we won't know on election night. But that scenario where he's just trying to tear down institutions even further on the way out, maybe they're filing lawsuits. I guess, you know, one question is we go to the mattresses too. That's one strategy. The other strategy is, you know, you kind of you know, say, okay, crazy uncle Donald, you, you say what you're going to say. We're kind of moving on. I'm just curious. It may be too early for that, but if you have an instinct on that. Well, I think I would do two things right now. I would make sure that you've got, um, the legal apparatus in place, uh, at a state level and at a federal level, um, to deal with that, um, to certify the election, to push back aggressively on the crazy things he's going to say about fraud in this election. And you know, he's going to say it. I mean, the man, you know, won in 2016, um, barely by 70,000 plus votes. Uh, and he still said there were, there was fraud. Um, so we know he's going to say it this time. Um, but I would get that apparatus in place now. And I would also start preconditioning people, um, that he's likely to say this and not to believe it. Um, and, um, and I would, I would do that fairly aggressively. Um, and then I would, um, concentrate on the transition, which I know has started, you know, that essentially becomes a shadow government pretty quickly. Um, and in, in 2008, uh, it did for us because we were in the middle of the economic crisis. And the day after the election, 
um, you know, the transition team was announced and we got going and we, we essentially operated as a shadow government. We were negotiating a stimulus package. We were working on bailouts, uh, all of the things that the Bush administration, who were, they were great to work with. Absolutely. Every step of the way. Uh, but they were very anxious to pull us in so they could hand it over to us. Um, and, you know, I would do that here, um, you know, create the presumption that the country is moving past him um, and, and moving past the chaos and putting effective leadership in place. Um, and look, if Joe Biden wins and if he wins by enough margin where there is there is no doubt, um, then we probably did pretty well in the House and Senate, too. Um, and so our margins will grow there and potentially we could take back the Senate. Um, and I would use that as a mechanism to help us move past Donald Trump also. Um, just start working on things that people care about. Um, you know, uh, ignore the chaos. And he, you know, legally he cannot stay in the White House, uh, even if he's challenging the election. Um, so um, it, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Um, but, you know, never underestimate Donald Trump. Um, uh, but I would, I would do both of those things. Start preconditioning people. This is what he's going to do. Put a legal apparatus in place. Uh, and then uh, stand up that transition as quickly as possible, create a shadow government and show that the country is moving past him. I think that is really sound advice. I'd also hopefully more and more journalists out there will get Republicans on the record saying that, yeah, they believe that the election results should be respected because mm -hmm. <laughs> I think maybe yeah. not all of them will do it, but I think a lot of them will. And I think that's very helpful, too. Uh, so, Stephanie, uh, last question for you. It's kind of an existential one. So, um, you know, you've been, uh, you know, as a lead communicator dealing with the effects of Fox for now decades. Uh, you've got, you know, Breitbart, you've got Sinclair, you know, that almost ran this pandemic uh, piece, uh, you know, over the weekend. You've got Prager University, you've got Ben Shapiro. I mean, this is not just a question of, you know, it makes us harder for Democrats to win elections that they have the power of this ecosystem that's coordinated and far reaching and is willing to say anything. But it's obviously devastating for the country. I mean, you know, one of the reasons people didn't wear masks and didn't take this seriously uh, was these conservative news outlets. So I'm just curious, like, you have any new thoughts about what we do about this? And for, I think the we is not just Democrats, but the country. Like, ultimately, is there a solution to this? so that somehow we can mitigate some of these down, um, you know, really negative effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. It's not just about building the counter to it. I think it's more um, convincing um, everybody but these outlets that you can't trust what's coming out of them. There'll always be an audience for it, um, but we need to limit that audience as much as possible. Um, and... Uh, you know, and not to say that we haven't been doing this, but call them out. You know, the, the, I was impressed with how quickly uh, the rest of the media, you know, I no longer call them mainstream media because it's everything, you know, you've got these crazy outlets, Sinclair and others, and then you've got everybody else. Um, everybody else pounced on Sinclair for what they were doing to Dr. Fauci. Um, and to the point where Sinclair had to backtrack and say they weren't, weren't going to air it. I was impressed with that. Um, and, you know, I think uh, coming out of the Trump era, um, you know, the, uh, the news media is much more vocal um, at calling out uh, untruth uh, and not always doing the he said, she said thing, but just saying something is just flat out not true. 
Um, and that's a big shift in the media. Um, as someone who's been dealing with the media for a very long time, it's the he said, she said. That was their way of getting around um, uh, on truths that were being said. Um, and it just muddied, you know, muddied. It, it, it prevented you from um, providing any clarity on it uh, or correcting the record. Um, but now if they will just call out something as being untrue, uh, and not just saying, um, you know, Democrats think it's untrue that they just flat out call it a lie. Um, it helps. Uh, and that's what they did here um, on the Fauci thing. And it was effective. Um, so I think we need to see more of that um, and to make sure that people have their eyes wide open and are awake to the damage that these kinds of networks can do. Um, that's my <laughs> that's my best answer for right now. But as you know, we've been pondering what to do about Fox for uh, two decades. So, um, you know, the, the Trump era um, put a lot of fuel on the fire of those networks. If Trump loses, um, it'll be interesting to see just how much of a, mar- a growth market there is. We know there will always be a market, but how much of a growth market there is uh, for those networks. You know, certainly if Trump loses, you know he's going to start his own. So right, of course, he and O A N N, yeah, no, but to your point about there is gonna be on it, and sadly, you know, it's it would be good news if basically we got you know the percentage of the American uh, population electorate uh, who believe this stuff, you know, down to twenty or twenty five percent, which is still an enormous number, <laughs> you know, but it's better than forty or forty two. So uh, I, I think that's right. Well, Stephanie Cutter, thank you for your time. Three weeks from now, you'll be in the middle of what we all hope is a uh, just an awesome. Uh, convention that helps uh, one of the major things that will help propel Joe Biden uh, to become our 46th president. So thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me on. Talk to you soon. Well, great conversation with Stephanie actually made me excited for the Democratic Convention. I will profess that that's not always the case. Even the ones I was intimately involved with, sometimes they can be more of a chore than than not. But I'm excited about this. I think it's going to be more bite-sized pieces of content from speeches to video to it sounds like they're also going to have some discussions involve a lot of uh, everyday Americans in the programming. You know, the the programming portion of the convention is also going to be shorter. So I think it will not drone on. Uh, It'll be uh, quicker and and therefore I think more interesting to people. So um, and it was great to hear from Stephanie uh, that their goal I think is the right goal, which is, yeah, you got to continue to remind people what a disaster Trump was. But, um, you know, the the bigger piece of business here is just to fill in the Biden side of the ledger, who he is, uh, his personal story, his biography, his values, his character, some of what he's accomplished in his life. But but more importantly, I think what he'll do as president um, and why America can trust him to dig us out from this mess um, so that we can uh, both finally escape the clutches of COVID-19 and rebuild the economy, but also on health care, on climate change, on immigration, on foreign policy, all these issues where I think more than enough Americans are hungry for a different direction for Joe Biden to give them both knowledge of what he intends to do, but confidence that he can actually accomplish it. So thanks for tuning in this week uh, and look forward to being with you next week.